And if you are able to practice that cognitive empathy and taking the perspective of that other individual, not necessarily sharing their suffering and sharing their distress, but if you're able to see where they're coming from, then you should be able to kind of engage with them and have a more cooperative relationship, be more productive, right? Have a more meaningful life. When we think about what resilience is, so this ability to cope with new situations, one of the ways that we can do that is being able to approach people with confidence and optimism that we are able to interact with them in a positive way. And so I think that that kind of translates in the workplace and outside of the workplace. You're listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, brought to you by University of Kentucky Human Resources, health and wellness. In this series, we'll explore a variety of well-being topics with experts from the university community in physical, emotional, nutritional, and financial health. Join us, and together we'll discover how we can thrive at work, home, and beyond. Hey there, listener. Welcome to another episode of Becoming Wildly Resilient. I'm your host, Jacob Hester. And I'm so thankful you're here as we close out the second year of the show. I have a very special guest today who you heard a clip from already. That voice belongs to my wonderful wife, Dr. Erin Hester. Erin is an assistant professor in the College of Communication and Information. She earned a master's degree in health communication and a doctorate in integrated strategic communication from the University of Kentucky. In this episode, we'll wade back into our feelings to talk about empathy and compassion. You'll hear us discuss the definitions and differences between the two, examples of empathy and compassion in entertainment and the real world, some of the benefits of each both in and out of the workplace, and how we can get better at experiencing empathy and expressing compassion. Before you head into our conversation, I first want to remind you to hit the follow button wherever you may be listening so that you don't miss any future episodes. Additionally, I love hearing from you and want to make sure that this isn't a one-sided relationship. So I invite you to reach out with any feedback or suggestions for guests or topics. The best way to do that is to email healthandwellness at uky.edu, all spelled out. As always, you can find a link in the show notes as well. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Hester. Welcome, Aaron. I'm excited to finally have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Obviously, I know you quite well since we've been married for six years now, but can you tell our listeners a little about yourself? your path to your role, and your research interest. Sure. The way that I like to introduce myself typically is by explaining what my personality type is like. So first and foremost, I am a Hufflepuff. So for all those Harry Potter fans out there, um, I think that kind of defines who I am in terms of being you know, a really loyal person to the people that I care about. Um, I'm also an ISFJ on the Myers-Briggs. Um, so this just means that I am an introvert, but I'm also highly social. So I care a lot about the people that I'm close to, and I really want to make a difference in their lives. And so I get a lot of energy from um, doing good out in the community and to other people's lives. So that's kind of led me down the path of where my career has taken me. I've always been interested in different wicked social problems, um, things that affect people on a large scale. And um, these are kind of these issues where they're really complex and they, um, one, you come up with one solution, it doesn't necessarily fix the whole problem. So things like obesity prevention and chronic disease prevention, food insecurity, 
uh, the opioid crisis. Um, these are different problems that I really try to tackle. And so I have found that my strengths are in communication and how can we create integrated strategic communication campaigns and messages, um, changing different message features to persuade people to make a difference and to um, make those positive changes that kind of promote a social good. Yeah, that'll be really interesting as we dive into these concepts of empathy um, and then that leading to compassion. Um, so I'm really excited to, to jump into our conversation here in a minute. But uh, before we jump into it, I'm going to pop in a new segment into the show as well. So you and I have had this deck of conversation starters on our kitchen table for a while. So I thought it'd be fun to just to start pulling one at random um, without either one of us knowing what the question is going to be. Um, and then maybe both of us answer it. So here we go. If you could have any view from your back porch, what would it be? Ooh, I think mine would be the mountains. I love, we took a trip to the Rocky Mountains um, not too terribly long ago. And I love like seeing the, the different snow covered mountains and then maybe a lake below it. If I could create that view, that would be like a relaxing place for me. I think I would be pretty close to yours. Um, obviously I would, I would like that. <laughs> we really enjoyed Rocky Mountain together, but, um, I think if I had like an ultimate view, I don't know, it might be that like Amalfi coast type of deal in like Italy or maybe like a, a place in along like highway one and big Sur area, Ooh, yeah, um, would be a good like back porch view as well. So I think that'd be my answer, but obviously I would travel with you <laughs> <laughs> to the Rockies too. But yeah, so let's get into our topic on empathy and compassion. So let's start with a basic definition of empathy. How is it most commonly defined? And then how would you explain it in your own words? Great. So I think that this is such an interesting topic because um, conversationally, we use these terms interchangeably all the time. So empathy, sympathy, compassion, um, we're all kind of talking about similar concepts, but there's really subtle but important distinctions between them. Um, and I always like to say that I am not a psychologist by training. I am a communication scholar. And so I use um, these different concepts in my own research and um, with the communication spin on it. So I'm not an, an emotion expert by any means. Um, but from my research, I can kind of provide what those um, different definitions are. So empathy, when we're thinking about that, is more of a collection. It's sort of an umbrella term that we use to describe a lot of different psychological processes. So there's kind of three main umbrellas when we think about empathy. Um, the first one is sharing. So this is kind of giving off um, emotional empathy. So I can vicariously experience the feelings that you are feeling. Um, so I can feel your pain. Um, the second piece is what we would call cognitive empathy or mentalizing. And this is where I'm really thinking about and understanding why you're feeling the way you are and what those different, what the situation was that led to that. Um, and then the third piece of that is really motivational. And so that's kind of where that compassion expression comes into play. And that's where I have thought about it, I'm feeling things, and then I have the, the desire to act upon this. And so when we think about empathy in these three different pieces, um, there's kind of some differing views in terms of, do we look at it collectively? Do we look at it in terms of individual pieces? Um, and so that's kind of where the rubber meets the road in terms of splitting that up. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think most people, when you hear the word empathy, it's probably 
perspective taking um, and like putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I think that's sort of the common definition or like common thought that people have when you first say empathy. Um, and then kind of the further you start to dig, you get into that like affective or like emotional empathy um, where you're starting to actually sort of feel others' feelings. Um, and then that kind of what turns into that motivational, compassionate empathy as well, right? And so I think when a lot of people are talking about it, they, they do take one of those two perspectives. So it's either perspective taking where I am putting myself in your shoes and seeing what it is that you're going through. Right. So that's that cognitive thinking piece. And then there is the emotional sharing where I am actually feeling those that suffering that you're going through. Right. So um, I think that most people kind of conflate those two a lot. Yeah, we see that like emotional empathy as well. Like that starts from a very young age. And I'll use like our personal example, of, like how you remind me all the time that like the energy that I'm giving off um, is conveying to our child and even at eight months old. And he's picking up on like sort of the, the bad energy or the good energy that I have. Um, and you know, that's a constant reminder that you sort of give me um, to make sure that we do that. But we see it in, you know, like animals and things like that as well. Um, even like animals, a human, you can tell like if, if you've had a dog, like those days that you're sick, they can kind of pick up on that. Um, and they're there to comfort you as well. So um, I think this is a really interesting, interesting topic to dive a little further into. And so I think um, another point that you kind of brought up is that, you know, some people, this is evolutionary, right? So there are evolutionary um, pieces of this. It is an adaptive function that we have. And so when it comes to babies, you know, babies can pick up on your mimicking, right? So they can mimic your facial expressions. Um, they can they can feel things. It's kind of crazy. We, we talked about how when I was doing my dissertation and, you know, I was coming to you and coming to Liam and tears were coming down my face and it almost looked like he was reaching out to, you know, comfort me. It was something that had bothered him about it. And so I think that that's a really a, a different piece that we um, kind of overlook sometimes, but especially some of the research that we look at um, coming from psychopaths. So psychopaths are really great at that thinking piece. So they can take the perspective of somebody else and think through that and understand it. They're not great at that caring piece. So they can't actually feel and have concern for other people. Um, the same is true with um, people that have autism. So very compassionate and they care deeply about other people, but sometimes they aren't very good at that mentalizing piece and understanding why somebody is in that position that they're in. So we talk a lot about emotions so is empathy an emotion? No. And so that's actually one of the things that I am most interested in. Um, as a persuasion scholar, we really look at how emotions um, drive different behaviors. So emotions are tied specifically to a behavioral tendency. And so if somebody is angry, they are more likely to approach something, right? If somebody is feeling um, sad, they're going to kind of withdraw. If somebody is feeling guilty, they're going to kind of, you know, turn inward towards themselves. So when we think about what these different emotions are, um, empathy is actually what we would call pan-effective. And so that just means that empathy um, is emotional. So certainly there are ties to emotion, but at the same time, it's the process of sharing those feelings. So I can feel your sadness. I can feel your happiness. Um, I can feel your fear. So depending on what that situation is, um, let's say I have a friend who's getting married. 
I can feel her happiness. I can feel her tears of joy. All of those things are very emotional processes. And that is what empathy is. But I am not actually feeling um, empathy. So when people talk about an actual emotion, what they're really talking about is compassion. And so compassion is a discrete emotion. So just how we have fear, how we have sadness, happiness, joy, um, that would be compassion. And so researchers have spent a lot of time kind of, you know, putting out evidence to suggest why compassion is specifically an emotion. Um, So it's really closely tied to empathy, but it's distinct. And so it's this idea that you have those um, warm feelings for somebody else, that deep sense of concern, and then that tie to, um, I want to alleviate your suffering. So when we look at somebody with compassion, we are immediately drawn to coming up with solutions, right? And so how can I actually um, alleviate that situation or have a more positive impact on it? And so what's really interesting about emotions is that they have a functional adaptation. So um, I think it's funny that Darwin is often credited by saying, you know, survival of the fittest, right? So he's credited with saying that people are ruthless competition and that's what's going to drive people to kind of survive most. Um, But really what is overlooked in a lot of Darwin's writings is that he actually credits sympathy more than he does competition. And so um, I'm paraphrasing with this, but he specifically talks about how communities that have the greatest number of sympathetic people will flourish best and have the most number of offspring. And so that often gets overlooked, but I think it's a point that's really worth mentioning that, you know, compassion as an emotion is really adaptive. People need those social bonds. That's how we're going to thrive as a community. Yeah, I've talked about it quite a bit on the show about how we like need each other. And that's been even in like the connection episode a couple episodes back. That was like a foundational piece of that episode. Um, And I think I've even referenced some work that I've seen from like, um, or maybe, maybe Adam Grant just referenced it. Um, But I've seen him mention that before, Um, basically some more modern research um, to what Darwin was discovering um, back when he was doing his research as well. So it's really interesting. But what is what is like empathy look or uh, maybe maybe not feel like because that's going to be such a kind of subjective experience for people. But what does that look like? Do you have any sort of examples of that, like empathy and compassion in action? Sure. So empathy, if we think about it as being the process that we're doing something that would be taking your perspective and really putting yourself in that person's shoes. So I am going to be talking to you about, you know, a situation that you have at work. Let's say that your family life is really challenging right now. Um, You're really struggling with this. Um, And so as I think it's easy to think about it in this context where, you know, your employer is then needing to see, what your situation is and how it's affecting the other outcomes in your life, right? So that's that perspective taking about why am I feeling these feelings, right? Compassion um, is specifically looking at that action-oriented approach, right? So if we see a child that's suffering, if we um, see individuals that are struggling to get by, um, whether that's they're hungry, whether that is opioid use, um, maybe it's also in the context of work where, you know, somebody is struggling to show up to work on time and you notice that they're a little bit disheveled, um, looking through those things. And then how can I actually improve upon that situation? Yeah, I think, and I, obviously I 
reference pop culture references all the time. So I tend to go with movies. So I'm actually going to go with a book this time. Um, just to let people know that I don't just only watch movies. <laughs> um, so To Kill a Mockingbird is actually an example that comes to mind for me um, when you're sort of seeing this in action. Um, what does that sort of look like? So that book is loaded with empathy and action-oriented compassion. Um, so you think about like Atticus and his relationship with Tom and taking on his trial, or um, even better, probably looking at Scout and Boo Radley um, and how Boo Radley was the, the kind of recluse that had stories all built up around him. Um, and rather than sort of perpetuating that, that sort of false narrative about Boo, um, Scout um, and Jim eventually sort of become um, friendly with Boo Radley and see him as a person. Um, but if, I also think about like someone like Nelson Mandela, if we go into like a real world example, despite the imprisonment that he had in sort of the country's overall history with apartheid, he had the ability to see the people across the table from him as a, as a human being, um, despite all of that baggage, um, and was able to help negotiate the end of apartheid in South Africa, and then obviously go on to become president as well. So I think that's a really powerful example of this idea of like taking empathy and putting it into action through compassion. I think that um, another great example is with Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers is kind of, you know, a childhood favorite. You know, we watched his show from eons ago, and we still have our son now watching Mr. Rogers too. So it's still relevant today, but he shows often about how you have to consider what the other person is going through, right? And how that person, what are they experiencing at that moment? And then how do you act upon that, right? So I think that that's a, also an interesting example. Um, another pop reference, I know that we watch Ted Lasso. We're pretty big in that. And um, in Ted Lasso, I think he's a great example of what it's like to, for a compassionate person to be there. So he is constantly thinking through, like, how how is my person? How are, how are my players? How are the people that I'm around? Um, how are they, you know, adapting to this situation? And how can I help them in that situation? Yeah, I've really enjoyed, I follow Amy Edmondson, who does Fearless Leadership, um, and she's been really big on tying back references in leadership and compassionate leadership into um, Ted Lasso as well. So she's been like pulling clips and examples out. Um, we know um, Brene Brown is a huge fan as well of <laughs> Ted Lasso for that reason. So we might actually get into that a little bit more here in a minute as well. Um, but we see like this is not really a, a new concept necessarily, even though it's really been kind of trendy, I guess you could say, over the last, you know, two, three, four years probably. Um, and not only in research, but in sort of practice and um, just the people's awareness and um, interest in the topic and that sort of thing as well. Um, but how does compassion take empathy to the next level, particularly as it relates to our, you know, physical, mental and social well-being? I think that that really speaks to the difference between what empathy is and what compassion is. So um, when we have empathy, we are kind of experiencing that sadness. Maybe we are understanding their situation and that's helpful. But if you don't do anything with that knowledge, then how is that actually going to benefit anybody? And so compassion is really kind of turning that into an action, right? So you feel compassion in response to empathy um, and you're really trying to take that action to alleviate that suffering and to have a more positive outcome of it. So I think that that's really how it can kind of move you along a little bit more. 
Yeah, especially when you're talking about about compassion and that action-oriented piece. It has the ability to do good for others, obviously, um, but it also then turns around and has the ability to do good for you as well. Um, so I think that's where you see this intersection of like your physical health, um, your mental and emotional well-being, um, and also your social well-being as well. And there's a lot of work out there now about the idea of self-compassion. And so starting trying to give compassion to other people really begins with starting with yourself and showing yourself that kindness and that um, that enduring love that, you know, I can do something to make my own situation better. I don't deserve to be suffering, essentially. Yeah, Dr. Kristen Neff, um, her work has come up quite a few times. I think it's been on two, maybe three episodes already. Um, and she's big into the idea of self-compassion and she's one of the kind of the lead researchers in that. Um, so I'll link to some of her work in the show notes as well. Um, but I know there's also some contrasting or maybe conflicting views on the importance of empathy. So can you explain maybe the two arguments for and against empathy? Sure. So there are two different sides of this coin. So there are some folks that say, you know, if anybody, if everybody were just more empathetic, then the world would be a better place. Um, and one of the leading scholars in kind of that camp is Jamil Zaki. And he wrote the book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. And it talks about how, you know, if anybody were just more empathetic, if we could put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, if we could understand what their feelings were, if we could feel their feelings more, then we would be more compassionate people and we would be kinder and we would, um, you know, make policy decisions even that would um, be more helpful for the greater good, right? So that's kind of this one camp that says we need to kind of have as much empathy as we can. The other camp um, there's a book by Paul Bloom, and it's called Against Empathy. And I'll be honest, I was really hesitant to read this book at first because I was somebody who, as a bleeding heart and altruist, I was like, I can't be against this. This is terrible. Um, but then I started reading the book. And I think when you get into it, you really understand that Paul Bloom's perspective is that empathy cannot always be the solution. So sometimes empathy biases our decisions. And the idea is that we feel more empathic for people that are closer to us. Um, and so if we kind of fall into that cycle, then we get into this really narrow-mindedness, this type of thinking that I'm going to improve situations for people that are closer to my stature, right? Um, the other point is that if you think about one of those pieces of empathy, I was talking about affective empathy or emotional empathy. If you talk about that point, what good comes from having a bunch of people feeling terrible, right? So if we are all just suffering, if we all have this emotional distress, what good is going to come from that? And that's sort of what Paul Bloom is saying. He says that empathy, feeling each or sharing each other's feelings is not the solution because it doesn't move us to act. Instead, he advocates for what's called rational compassion. And it's this idea that we need to have more compassion for other people, um, that you know the world is going to be kinder and more altruistic, and people are going to be more willing to help people and care about them if we show them compassion or concern for others. So in that sense, he's advocating for that emotion as sort of the um, motivator there. So it's kind of as if they are speaking about speaking across one another in a sense. So Paul Bloom is more advocating for compassion instead of empathy and saying that, you know, if we are constantly, you know, 
feeling other people's sadness and feeling other people's distress, then we are not going to make any progress, right? Instead, we need to show concern for other people and then use that to kind of make moves, right? To improve their situations. Um, And then on the other hand, I think that um, Jamil Zaki is really interested in you know, having people understand the perspective of others. So in a sense, I think that, you know, the cognitive piece of that, you know, thinking through other people's situations is really helpful, right? You could actually benefit from understanding why somebody is in that situation, but not necessarily to the extent that you're sharing their, their burden. Yeah. It kind of seems like they're, they're not really arguing against each other, even though I think that's sort of how it's pitted. Right. Um, but when you're talking about the different types of empathy, when you're looking at affective versus cognitive, they're kind of talking about those different pieces individually. And one's focusing, it seems like one's kind of focusing on one and one's focusing on the other. Um, and they're not really, they're not really contrasting each other necessarily. And um, they just have a, a different view on sort of where that line stops or what's sort of more important and I will say it's been my read on the whole situation and the literature that I've done or the research that I've done into the the emotion and empathy literature is that, you know, a lot of times the issue stems from a, uh, a difference of opinion in what the words are that we're using, right? So they're all talking about kind of similar constructs, but we're using different words for it. And so I think that's why kind of clarifying what it is that you're talking about, whether that is empathy or whether that is compassion or whether that's just sympathy. Um, I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, you and I have talked about this on quite a few walks as well. Um, and it makes me think about think about another theory, um, moral foundations theory. So how does that play into maybe this conversation? So moral foundations theory, I think, is really fascinating. Um, this is by Jonathan Haidt, and he discusses how you know, there is not a moral and immoral person. People are not just amoral, right? Um, instead, people have different morals. And so it's this perspective that, you know, I am not always right and you are not always wrong. We just have a different value system, essentially. So um, his research has shown that people that are more focused on these different loyal foundations, individualizing foundations, um, things such as, you know, I really value my family and I really value tradition. I really value um, upholding um, authority, right? Folks that really kind of uh, value that more have a different approach to morality versus others who maybe value care and uh, justice, Um, or fairness for everybody, they kind of value things slightly differently as well. And so the issue is not that we are, one person is moral and the other person is amoral, it's just that we have different values. And I think like the best example for me when I'm thinking through this is when we think about the, the pandemic, right? So here we are having this big discussion. We have one side of the fence that's saying, wear your mask, you need to protect everybody, right? You have a duty, you have a responsibility to to protect everybody else around you. So really trying to appeal to people's um, sense of care for everyone, right? Everybody deserves to be healthy. Um, And then on the other hand, you have people that are saying, you know, my family needs to be in school. My kids need to have this education. They are the most important thing to me. I really want to protect the people that are closest to me. And I need all of these different things to go on according to plan um, to kind of uphold my values. Um, So I think that that, instance, you know, we're kind of talking across one another, right? We're, we're both trying to do the moral imperative thing. Um, but we just have a different perspective on what that is. 
And I think that's where the importance of empathy comes back in too, because that's where that cognitive empathy takes over for me um, and that perspective taking. So you put yourself in that person's shoes and maybe their background and history and how they got to that point and sort of rationalize their decisions. And that can help you have a more constructive conversation as well, which is something that I think we've been missing, um, that we've, we've sort of pulled this cognitive empathy out of the equation um, and just everybody, you're, like, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's no in-between. Um, when in reality, like, we're, we sort of need to have that ability to take the perspective of someone else and to be able to better understand with them and then have that conversation with them and maybe find some solutions that are, um, I won't say middle of the road, but at least, like, a good compromise for people so that we do continue to move forward instead of continuing to diverge from each other. And I think that from my perspective as a communication scholar, um, understanding that people have that different approach to it is really important. So if I am trying to convince, um, you know, folks in Eastern Kentucky to wear masks, the most effective message is not going to be protect your neighbor, protect everybody around you, really focusing on these broad um, wide-reaching messages, right? I need to tailor that knowing what their particular morality is kind of focused on. So if they're really focused on that loyalty and that family piece, my messages are going to look completely different to persuade them to do something, um, even though the outcome is the same, right? So kind of flipping it and, and flipping back over to emotional empathy, is it possible to experience too much empathy kind of based on what you've learned from those two works that you've cited already. Right. So this is actually a, a big debate that we see um, about what people are calling compassion fatigue. Um, and so the idea is that we can um, witness all of these individuals that are in helping professions. So we have, um, whether that's first responders, uh, social workers, anybody who is in what we would say just a helping profession, they experience this really high emotional fatigue where they are, um, dealing with a lot of distress over and over again. And um, so some folks are calling that compassion fatigue. Um, I have, based on my reading, um, I have kind of subscribed to the idea that there isn't necessarily compassion fatigue. We can't run out of an emotion. Um, but the difference is that we can have what would be more closely aligned with empathy fatigue or that emotional empathy fatigue. So me having to experience vicariously your suffering over and over and over again is going to be very draining, right? But I cannot run out of the amount of care. I don't think that I have a finite amount of me having concern for other individuals, right? I can feel emotionally exhausted from being distressed. Um, if I am constantly working with children who, um, are, you know, battling all, all sorts of different ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Um, and I am trying to empathize with them and vicariously I'm experiencing their pain. That is going to be really challenging and I'm going to feel burnt out from that. Right. Um, but on the other hand, if I'm just having some sort of distance between myself and them and I'm not experiencing that pain, instead I'm just having concern for them, I do not think that there is a finite amount of resources for that. And that's sort of what the literature, I think, is leaning more towards. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but can you explain how empathy and compassion are related to the field of communication? Sure. So 
As a communication scholar, I focus mostly on how I can use different message features to persuade individuals to take some sort of action, right? So my particular contextual interest is focused on, you know, pro-social and how can we promote some sort of social good. And so I'm really interested in how can we move people towards that particular behavior. So we know that um, rational um, arguments are one route that people can talk about. So if I'm throwing lots of statistics at you, that's one thing. Um, but what we also know is that different numbers are really kind of numbing to people. So we don't really know what you know one billion people feels like. We have no idea what that is. Um, instead, we have to kind of put some emotion behind that. And so I think that from my perspective, it's really interesting to study emotion and to study, you know, how can we move people and motivate them to take certain behaviors by bringing in that piece of meaningfulness, right? So um, one of the scholars who I'm, I really enjoy following is Paul Slovic. And he has a website, it's called The Arithmetic of Compassion, and he has a book also, um, which is Numbers and Nerves. And his whole idea is talking about how, you know, compassion is something that might fade over time, or so it seems, right? So we um, can see that when we experience this with lots of individuals, we tend to kind of um, lose that sense of of feeling for them, that concern for them. And so instead, it's like an, an enumerate value, right? So we don't value a thousand lives as much as we value one life. And so as a communication scholar, it's how can we kind of overcome that barrier? How do we overcome the fact that people are overwhelmed by this? And so um, what my dissertation research and kind of my future work is focusing on is how do we use theory different communication theory that kind of tells us which message features we can tweak in order to produce compassion. So compassion being that that response to suffering and that desire to move somebody to, to help them and to alleviate that. And how can we use different words and different message features to kind of initiate that so that then they will take the action that's going to help other people, right? So in my experience, communication has everything to do with this, right? So it's all about how we can communicate with people so that they can then feel empowered to make these different choices. So what have you learned from your projects, uh, particularly your dissertation and your work with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR as it's more commonly known? Right. So with my research, particularly with my dissertation research, I looked at two different topics. So I looked at food insecurity and the opioid epidemic. And in looking at those, I conducted a lot of different focus groups in understanding how do people perceive this problem? So what are the causes? What are the consequences of this? And um, how do they see themselves as being sort of an agent of change? And so this is this um, an approach that we take often is in communication where we you know, conduct formative work to really understand these different perspectives so that then we can use that information to create the content for the messages that will then persuade individuals to take action. So what I found um, in looking at food insecurity and opioid use, particularly among individuals who are members of Gen Z, um, is that these individuals care a lot about these different situations. They're very high on sympathy, right? So they have that, that concern for other individuals, but they're really light on that action. And so the idea is that we need to move them from caring about something to actually taking an action to help alleviate that suffering. 
And so particularly for food insecurity and for um, the opioid epidemic, when they're thinking about these different individuals who are suffering from this, um, one of the ways that we can do that is to kind of reduce the um, the differences between themselves and others, right? So kind of drawing in that, that new um, circle of what do we have in common together? Um, this is a similar concept to what I was doing some research with um, Drs. Kimberly Parker and Bobby Ivanoff in the Department of Integrated Strategic Communication. Um, they had some contacts in uh, North Macedonia with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR. And they were really interested in finding out um, why we can't have this more accepting culture, this accepting attitude, more favorable sentiment towards refugees in North Macedonia. So there are a lot of refugees that are kind of flowing through that that country, um, through the Western Balkan route. And so they're having to have the conversation of how do we accept these individuals? How do we support them? And it's not so much that they need to take a specific action in terms of, you know, um, providing them with an actual place to stay or something like that. Instead, it's more of how can we adjust the sentiment so that they're just more friendly towards them and just accepting of them. And so I think through that different, those different research projects, we've been able to see, you know, a few of the different trends that are showing up. And that is that individuals are more likely to see that individuals are deserving of our compassion, they're deserving of our help, when they see that the instances around them, um, the situations around them are not of their own making, right? So they're blameless or the responsibility of, you know, their situation, the responsibility of the harm that they're feeling is not of their own making, all right? So using communication, we can then kind of paint pictures of these individuals that show that they are sort of victims and that they are deserving of our compassion. So let's take the conversation just a little bit further and talk about some of the benefits of empathy and compassion both in and out of the workplace. So in general, why would you say that each of these are important? Well, I think that empathy is incredibly important when it comes to just thinking through the diverse people that you come into contact with every day. So whether that's in your job or whether that's just in your daily life, you're going to encounter people that are different than you. And that's one of the great things about America is that we have such a diverse population. And if you are able to practice that cognitive empathy and taking the perspective of that other individual, not necessarily sharing their suffering and sharing their distress, but if you're able to see where they're coming from, then you should be able to kind of engage with them and have a more cooperative relationship, be more productive, right? Have a more meaningful life. When we think about what resilience is, so this ability to cope with new situations, one of the ways that we can do that is being able to approach people with confidence and optimism that we are able to interact with them in a positive way. And so I think that that kind of translates in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Um, in terms of compassion, I think that often people think that if you are leading with compassion, then you are leading with your heart. And they think that your emotions can kind of lead you astray. Um, but compassion is actually quite different than that. It's kind of the the opposite in a sense, if you think about it, because it is tied specifically to that action, right? So if we are able to use compassion and have concern for other people's suffering and then wanting to reduce that, then we are taking a very solutions-oriented approach, 
right? So we're actively coming up with ways that we can help other people. And I think that that's really important for our everyday life. Yeah, we see like with other topics that we've discussed, like it's also contagious in a way that like group norms are powerful. And you can kind of see that even with Paul Bloom's work and being one of the arguments sort of against empathy. Um, and so that's that's actually really fascinating to me is like to, to kind of take Jamil Zaki's approach then to like get more people to be more empathetic um, is to be around more empathetic people. Um, so that's that's kind of fascinating to me. And I think about kind of moving it into compassion as well and how that's like the benefits are similar to like gratitude. Um, and again, like the ability to do good for others and yourself. Um, but then that also helps us, you know, better cope with stress and those types of things. Um, but it also helps, you know, deepen intimacy, whether that's with a partner or just somebody that you're close with um, or just connection in general. And we've talked about that um, quite a few times on the show as well. So it's really kind of, as you sort of mentioned, it's like fundamental to solving conflict. Um, but I think kind of personally for me too, it's like empathy is what makes art good in all forms. Um, so whatever that medium is, whether that is in literature, whether that is TV or music, um, or whatever their sort of art form that you find it. Um, that's what makes it so good. And that's why you can easily kind of pick out examples from books and movies and TV shows and um, all those types of things. So, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, anytime you watch a television show or a movie, you are taking that, pers you're doing that perspective taking, right? You're kind of building that relationship. You're kind of having a parasocial relationship with the individuals that are in there. Um, and you're able to kind of transport into that story. And I think that's what makes TV and other forms of entertainment so compelling. Yeah, we were, you and I were watching uh, Working Moms last night, a couple of back-to-back -back episodes that were just kind of almost anxiety-inducing. And I was like literally having these like reactions within my body. Um, I was definitely having that sort of emotional empathy um, as the characters were going through these sort of like high stress type of scenarios. And I think that's a good example of how, you know, cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, they play together, right? So you and I can understand what they're going through because we are going through some of those same things right now. And so that is also leading us to then kind of feel those same feelings too, right? So we're able to have both cognitive and effective empathy, whether or not we want to or not. Yeah. And I think in the workplace specifically too, we see like in the research that Empathetic leaders have happier, healthier, more productive employees. Um, but then thinking about some of the other work that happens around the university, um, so like in a healthcare setting, um, doctors and nurses with higher empathy have patients with better health and higher patient satisfaction levels. And then we see like maybe like police um, that helps, as I mentioned already, sort of diffuse tense situations or crises as well. So um, I, I think it's it's beneficial across many levels in the workplace as well. And it's not just for leaders um, or not just for um, the average employee or not just for one sort of segment of the population. I think it is something that um, we could all get a little bit better at. Um, and it also helps the rest of us collectively too. Absolutely. Empathy is one of those, um, empathy training is something that we're seeing a lot of leadership in different sectors kind of take on. And that's the idea that, you know, as your servant leader, I not only want you to do good and I want you to thrive and I want you to be productive. Um, I also want you to feel better about things, right? So let's end by talking about how we can cultivate more of each of these. So what are some tips or tools you have for becoming more empathetic? 
So I think one of the first things that we can think through is um, using empathy as that starting point. So using that perspective taking to kind of understand, you know, exactly why somebody is feeling the way that they're feeling and why they're in that situation that they are. Um, again, if you return to like a work example, say you are not yourself a parent, but, you know, with the pandemic and working from home, you realize that your other colleagues or your other um, employees are the ones that are having to deal with childcare at home, right? So that might not be something that you are familiar with, but being able to put yourself in their shoes, um, not necessarily to experience their feelings, but to kind of see where they're coming from is going to be a great starting point. But again, at the end of the day, you know, businesses are driven on performance, right? So we have to have that, that action component. So we have to have compassion kind of involved in that. And so I think that kind of identifying where those different opportunities for connection are can kind of help you with that. Um, there's a lot of different research out there now talking about um, meditation and how meditation is one of those strategies that helps you sort of widen your sphere of connection, essentially, right? So it helps you sort of um, dissolve the boundary between us and them or you and me. So instead, I can now focus on how we all have something in common, right? Um, there is some research that talks about how if we are able to talk about individuals in a more vague sense, or if we are able to connect with them in a more vague sense, then we're able to move that needle a little bit. So instead of, you know, focusing on the specific characteristics of, say, a panhandler, um, you instead talk about how they are a father. Um, and that's something that you might be able to resonate with. So kind of widening that sphere and seeking out where those connections might be that you might not otherwise see. Um, I think another important point is that we need to be really generous in our you know, understanding of other people's situations and how people cope with things, right? So I will interpret a problem in a different way than what Jacob will interpret a problem. And that's in a different way than, you know, what all of our coworkers might interpret a problem. And we all have different ways of coping with those different things as well. And so kind of being generous and thinking through, you know, maybe somebody else is going through something and they're dealing with it in a slightly different way. And my biggest takeaway is thinking through that compassion is really what's going to drive those solutions, right? So Instead of just, you know, saying, gosh, I'm so frustrated that my coworker keeps coming to work five minutes late every single day, instead taking the time to think through, okay, well, what's, what's happening here? And then what can I do that's going to also help this situation, right? So maybe they are struggling to get that kid out the door every single day at that same time, and the remote meeting at 8.15 is not going to work. So maybe I just adjust that by 15 minutes. And that's something that you can easily do. That's not going to you know, be a huge burden to either of you. Yeah, kind of jumping back to the, the beginning of your answer and that sort of mindfulness and meditation piece. It's really, again, it's about awareness. And I've said this multiple times on the show, um, as have some of the guests as well. Um, but not only the awareness piece of it, but actually sort of just being open and receptive um, to cooperation and to others' feelings um, and to really try to avoid placing blame on them as well so that you can then sort of do that cognitive empathy and that perspective taking um, and then potentially, you know, have that um, sort of emotional reaction as well um, in some form so that you can move into that motivational or, or move into compassion or something like that. Um, but we see that, uh, we've already mentioned self-compassion, um, but loving kindness is another meditative practice 
um, that really gets at this idea of compassion for others. Um, and so I'll link to, again to some resources related to loving kindness. Um, and that's topics that um, previous guests, Jackie Carroll um, and Eric Wilkinson, um, do a lot of work in with our folks as well. So I like to do some different things in the show notes that you can check out. And I think it's just what you mentioned earlier about how there is, you know, a contagion element to it. So it's sort of this positive feedback loop. So when you are giving yourself compassion and when you're showing compassion to other individuals, then that's going to come back around to you too. So not to sound like too hokey, but it is sort of that positive feedback loop that kind of helps with it. So what other resources do you recommend for people to dive deeper into the topics of empathy and or compassion? Are there any other you know, books or websites or podcasts or anything like that that you haven't discussed already? So we did talk about a few of those books. And I, um, one of my mentors is really big on understanding both sides of the argument. So I do recommend that if you are going to read Jamil Zaki's book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World, that you also read... Uh, Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy. And I think that both of those um, books are really good in kind of helping you understand the different perspectives and you can make up your own mind about how you feel about it. Um, another book that's specific to work, the workplace, is Awakening Compassion at Work, The Quiet Power That Elevates People and Organizations. And that's by Jane Dudden and Monica Warline. Um, and I really like that book in terms of applied uh practices and kind of thinking through how this can work in this particular context. Um, I also mentioned the work by Paul Slovic and his website is The Arithmetic of Compassion. And I think that that is a really great resource so you can understand sort of why compassion is such a hard thing for us to pinpoint and why we're challenging to kind of be a more sensitive and caring world at this point. So I really like that. Um, he also has a book that I mentioned, it's Numbers and Nerves, um, Information, Emotions, and Meaning in a World of Data. The other two resources that I'll mention, there is a Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. It's quite the mouthful. Um, but that is actually at Stanford University. They have an entire group of scholars who are dedicated to this work. Um, and as Jacob knows, we love California. We love that area. So... Um, show some love to that center as well. And then if you are local in Lexington, I also like to mention the Compassionate Lexington Project. And so that's a community organization and they focus on, you know, what identifying the different ways that they can give people can give back in the community. And so each year they do a Lex Give Back, which is a week-long challenge, and they encourage people to promote different social goods that you can do as well. So I think that they give a lot of great examples and I think that's a great resource locally if you're interested in kind of doing action in your own hometown. So our Wildly Resilient playlist is still going now on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music. So what song would you add that brings about a sense of resilience, empathy, or compassion in your life? So I would add uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. And I think that this song is interesting. Jacob knows me very well. And that one of my, I think, strengths, he thinks downfalls, is that I listen to a song on repeat. And so I really <laughs> like to play it to death, right? And so in this is not something that's new. I have always done this. So in college, when I was ever I was going through a, a tough time, I would turn this song on and I would play it on repeat. And it would kind of bring me into a, a much happier mood where I could then kind of move forward and carry on with my life. So... I think that that's a, a good song for resilience. 
She tried to convince me to put the entire soundtrack to Hamilton on there as well, but he, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't go for it. <laughs> that one's not going to happen. Uh, but yeah, so the final final question. It's the last word. What's the one thing you hope listeners take away from our conversation? So I think when we're talking about empathy and compassion, it's more about not leading with your heart or becoming a slave to your emotions necessarily, but it's really about turning that into action. So you're recognizing what's going on in the world, understanding other people, and then how can I act on that? How can I improve that situation for other people? So I hope that that is something that we can all kind of embed in our lives and move forward with. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we were finally able to take some of our many conversations on our daily walks um, and put them into podcast form um, and get that information out to other people so it's not just hanging around with the two of us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. I encourage you to take some time to think about situations where you could better experience empathy and express more compassion. How might you and others benefit from it? And what might get in your way? Use that information to identify some small steps you could take to get there. Maybe it's trying a loving-kindness meditation, asking more questions, taking a moment when you're irritated by someone's behavior or attitude to consider their why. Maybe it's reading a book about a person or a group of people different than you. Or it could be donating a little time to a cause you'd like to learn more about. If you'd like additional support in finding ways to be a more empathetic and compassionate person, Remember that we have health coaches and mental health therapists on staff who are here for you. University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their respective spouses can meet with them for a free consult. They also offer workshops, programs, and presentations throughout the year. As I mentioned in the intro, this also wraps the second year of the show. I want to thank all of my guests again for the enlightening conversations. I've learned and grown from each one, and I hope you have as well. And of course, I have to thank you, the listener, because I would not be able to continue this endeavor without you tuning in each month. So as I mentioned in the intro, reach out. Send your questions, suggestions, and feedback. The show is for you. Finally, as always, be sure to check out the show notes to find links to anything we mentioned in the episode, as well as a link to the HR calendar. There you can browse any additional upcoming work life and well-being events from University of Kentucky Human Resources. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and stay well. Thanks for listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, a podcast series from University of Kentucky Human Resources, Health and Wellness. The UK HR Health and Wellness team, consisting of certified health coaches, fitness experts, registered dietitians, and wellness specialists, offer a wide range of online and in-person programming to University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their spouses. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen and subscribe to future episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at UKY Wellness. There, you'll find links to episode show notes and more. You can also email healthandwellness at uky.edu with any questions or suggestions for future episode topics. To learn more about well-being benefits offered by University of Kentucky Human Resources, visit www.uky.edu/hr/wellbeing. Live well.